Let me ask you a question. What would you like to change? I'm not talking about the world, and I'm not talking about your spouse or your coworker or someone else that you know that you can think of a list pretty easily. I'm talking about you. What would you like to change about you? That's a pretty logical time to think about it. Right? The change of the the change of the seasons. It's what the behavioral um, behavioral economists call the fresh start effect. Right? At certain periods of time, we become more likely, more receptive to thinking about change in our lives. And probably second only to January in the new year, September is a time when that tends to happen. Right? The start of school, the end of summer vacations, the beginning of community activities, you get back into kind of a nor- more normal work-life kind of a rhythm. And, and so what, 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 would it, what would it be? It, it's particularly appropriate as well because we're studying this fall this second half of the, the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in this region of Asia Minor, a bunch of churches, one of which was Ephesus, and so it takes on the name Ephesians, but it was written with two primary purposes. One, to communicate to the Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, who they are in Christ, what their identity is, what God has done for them, and what has changed them fundamentally because of the, the action and the work of Jesus. But then secondly, in light of, of that, in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3, how then should we live? What does life as a Christian look like in light of what God has done for us and the new identity that we possess in Christ? And so it lays out for us a whole bunch of areas, practical areas, where we're able to measure ourselves, where we're able to look at our lives and say, okay, how do I, how do I measure up and what do I need to do to change? Now, last week, Kevin examined in chapter 4, verses 7 to, to 16, and he used this memorable image of a tree growing up into maturity, and he asked us, he asked us to consider for ourselves, what does that what does that look like? And he ended in, in a way that was just a, just a perfect setup for this week. I know he intended it. I know he planned it. We didn't talk about it, of course, but he just does that kind of thing. He just knew where I was, where I was going and what was, no, more accurately, he probably knew what Paul was doing. He knew what, was, he knew what Paul was setting up for. And so he ended in an absolutely perfect way that sets up what we're talking about this week. And I was sitting there, and I'm scribbling down what he's writing. I was, this is the perfect transition to verses 17 to 24. Because he asked, if you were to measure your spiritual growth, how would you do? Your willingness to serve, your commitment to the truth, your, your ability to be able to speak the truth in love to other people, all of those things. And then he asked, at the end, he said, okay, are you content with who you are? Are you content with who you are? Now, I think if we're honest, all of us would answer that question with a no. Not really. So what would it be on this first, this first Sunday in autumn? What would it be? What do you want to, to change? Think about it. Take a second, really. Is it your temper? Do you just fly off the handle at stuff that really is not that all, the, all that big a deal and you find yourself almost with this sort of out-of-body experience like, is that me? <laughs> or, or tone it down just a little bit with your words. Maybe you don't fly off the handle or whatever, but your words, they just always have this sort of biting kind of a tone to them. Sarcasm, it's just, it's in everything. It just always has an edge, the things that you say. Are you bitter? Angry about something? Maybe subtly, but it's kind of on the inside. Somebody has done something to you and you're just... You just can't get rid of the, the feelings that you have towards them, this, this bitterness. Are you addicted in some way to a chemical substance, to some kind of behavior? Right? Are, you, are, you, are you stuck in some kind of sexual sin? Pornography, adultery, 
something that you don't want to be in, but you can't feel as if you'd know a way to get out of. You wish you could change how you feel about yourself. Maybe it's something, it, these are behaviors, things that you've done over the years or in your past or things that have been done to you that cause immense amounts of shame. And you just say, I wish I could just change that. I wish I could just change this view that I have of, of myself, the shame that I feel. Right? Or do you want to change your relationship with someone? You're with your kids, with your spouse, with your coworkers, with your parents. Now, all of those things, every, that's a good list. And you can add to it, I'm sure. But that list that I just gave, those things that I went through, all of those things Paul addresses specifically in the, in the, in the chapters that follow. In the rest of chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, he touches on every single one of those areas. Right? And so, so it, it makes sense then for us to look at what does it mean to change. And that's what he's doing in 17 to 24 of chapter 4 is he's laying the groundwork. He's building out the framework for in all of those areas, how, what does change look like? So let's look at, let's look at this. Let me, let me read, and I want you to listen. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is God's Word. Now, there are four main questions that I think come out of this as it relates to change that, that we need to ask, that we need to be able to answer in order to understand how we are to grow up into the maturity that the Apostle Paul is commending for us. Four questions that we need to ask. First question, do I really need to change? Do I really need to? Second question, right, what's my standard for change? Change to what? Is it just change for the sake of change, or do I actually have something to which I should be changing? Third question, how? How do I actually change? If you're convinced of the need and you know what the standard is, how does that actually happen? How does it occur? And then finally, is change even really possible? Even if I wanted to and I think I know how. Can I really do it? Those are the four questions. Now, let's look at each of them, because I think Paul talks about it here. First, do I need to change? Now, this isn't actually hard. Paul, I think, unequivocally says, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. Right, look at what he says. He commands it. Verse 17, so I tell you this and insist on in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, this language here, this is the signal. Paul is returning to the same line of argument that he started at the beginning of chapter 4. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Right? I urge you. And here, in verse 17, we see the same sense of urgency. He kind of builds these two verbs right on top of each other, right? So I tell you this, and then he intensifies it. He says, and I insist on it urging you. I tell you this, and I insist on it. And then he adds divine authority to it. I insist on it in the Lord. So this is very important. Paul, Paul is, is saying, without any kind of question, I am telling you that this needs to happen. Now what? <laughs> what is he telling them needs to happen? 
He's saying you can't live like the Gentiles anymore. And you change. You you can't live like the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting. What does he mean? Because the Ephesians, of course, they were Gentiles. (laughs) They were not of a a Jewish ethnic background like a lot of like Paul or or many of the very first Christians were. They were were ethnically non-Jewish. And so what's Paul talking about? Does he mean that Christians need to start eating Jewish food, that they need to start wearing kind of Middle East, dressing like Middle Eastern Judeans, that they need to start following the, the cultural traditions of the of, 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 the, of the Jewish people. No. And you know that because Paul writes very strongly against that in other places, specifically in the book of Galatians, because there were those that would have argued that. To no longer live like the Gentiles, some would have argued, means you, means you become Jewish, essentially. It means you adopt the customs of, of historic and cultural Judaism. And Paul says, no, over and against those people who were maintaining that, for, for someone to be a Christian, they needed to essentially adopt ethnic Judaism. Paul said, no, that's, that's not it. And that's what he, he states very, very strongly in places like the book of Galatians. So what does he mean then when he says, no, don't live like the Gentiles anymore? Well, in a broader sense, what a Gentile is, in a non-ethnic sense, is anyone who is outside the covenant promises of God. It's, it's someone... You know, and we see it clearly with the, with the coming of Jesus, most clearly. We see the extension of these promises to those who are, who are not Jewish, to all nations. So what Paul's saying here is he's, he's talking about a Gentile mindset, a, a, a mindset that, that, that says God's requirements don't apply to me. God's promises don't apply to me. That's what the covenant was. It was the requirements and the promises of God that were given to the people of God. And that's a Gentile mindset that says, I'm, I'm outside of the requirements and I'm outside the promises of God. And so Paul is saying, stop living like the Gentiles. You need to stop living like the promises and the requirements of God don't apply to you because they do. Now, it's not to say that the Ephesians were necessarily, that these churches were necessarily participating in these, but this is what the Christian life is like. It's an ongoing effort to put off that Gentile mindset where the requirements and the promises of God don't apply to you. And then, verses 18 and 19, he expands on why this is so destructive, why this Gentile mindset is absolutely destructive. Look in verses 18 and 19. He says, The Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Then he goes further. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So see, you see, the Gentile mentality is one that is separated from God because, Paul says, it ignores him. Now, not, this, is, this is ignorance here in the sense of an active ignoring, not like in the, like, oh, I'm just not aware. I had no idea. No, this is, this is an active ignoring of the, of the commandments of God. It's a denial of him. It's not just simply passively being unaware. And note the reason that, for this denial of God. This is the scary part. Why do we ignore God? Because our hearts are hard. They're hardened. Now, this word, this word here for hardening, it's often, it was often used as a medical term in the time, sort of a sclerosis of the heart, or sometimes in the sense of joints, like, you know, arthritis, like it's, your joints are stiff. It's a, it's a, it's a hardening of them that don't, that don't allow them to move the way they should. Or, or in, an, in another kind of sense, also related to the body, like calluses, right? Calluses that form. Now, what are, what are, what are calluses? How, what happens how do, they, how do they form? Think about that for a minute, right? When, when you, with your hands or with your, with your skin, sort of reform some sort of repetitive task with your, with your hands, let's say, some sort of repetitive task over and over again, when they make contact with something over and over again, what happens? Calluses begin to form in the skin. 
It starts to get hard. What happens when a gymnast for years and years spent, you know, spends time you know, spinning on the, on the bars or someone playing the guitar is, is, is touching the strings over and over again, right? Calluses begin to form on their skin. It gets hard. Now, there's something in both of those senses, either a gymnast or someone playing the guitar, there's something that's protective about that. All right, but what it means is that repeated contact with something brings an insensitivity to it. And in order to actually feel, you need to press harder. Right? Now, what Paul's saying is that's the way that our hearts have become. Right? Continual contact with sin, with a Gentile mindset, leads to a hardening such that it actually becomes more difficult to feel, more difficult to sense, the farther you go into it. And so in order to feel the wrongness of this Gentile mindset, of the sinfulness that, that Paul is describing here, you actually need more of it in order to, to feel it. And ultimately, it just leads to a further and further hardening until you can't feel it at all. That's what he talks about, this, this continual lust for more. You see, and, and this is where it becomes a little bit dangerous, because it's easy to sort of downplay the urgency when it comes to those areas of your life that you want to change, that you know, because you start to say, well, you know what, I'll change later. But Paul's warning us is like, when that happens, you put it off, put off thinking about it, you just become hard to it. It becomes more difficult to feel. That, that feeling of, I need to change this, that becomes harder to feel the farther you go along because you become callous to it. It's like the, the prayer of, of St. Augustine, the early church father. Maybe some of you have heard this quote. It's, it's kind of a funny quote. He was, 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 was well known early in his life for his, his sexual infidelity, his philandering. And he said later after his conversion, he said, this is how I used to pray back then. He said, I used to pray, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> not yet. I'll be chaste, but not yet. That's a very dangerous prayer. And that's what, Augustine, that's what Augustine was noting later in his life. He said, but that's, that's, that's really dangerous because you become callous. Now, at this stage, we need to ask ourselves, why is Paul talking about this to, to Christians? Because, well, because, Paul says, the root of our problem, Christian, is that even though your relationship with God is legally different, it's legally changed on the, on the basis of now being a part of the, the covenant community, you are functionally, we functionally still live like this all the time. We still functionally live as if nothing has changed. And that's what he's warning us against. We live with a Gentile mindset, and we need to change. So the need for change. Now, what is my standard for change? Because we can look at it and say, okay, I need, I need to change, but who gets to change to what? Do I get to decide? Let me quote from John Calvin. Next month, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Let's, let's do some Calvin. John Calvin, so this is what he says. To prompt us toward righteousness more effectively, Scripture tells us that God the Father, who has reconciled us to himself in his anointed one, Jesus Christ, has given us in Christ a model to which we should conform our lives. A model to which we conform our, should conform our lives. In other words, you need to change and you need to change to be like Jesus. Now, that's not just Calvin. That's what Paul's saying right here, verses 20 and 21, right? He's made the case that without change, we're going to destroy ourselves and how we're heading down the wrong path. But the point of his argument is that the Christian can know it's the wrong path because it doesn't match the teaching in the ministry of Jesus. Look, he says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. See, the Christian comes to see that the behavior choices that we make need to be in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. This is the standard by which we measure ourselves. 
to adapt the image that, that Kevin used last week, another image is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the wall that you stand against, that your parents or grandparents mark your height against. It's, Jesus is the, is the growth chart on which we mark and measure our, our growth. Okay, so that's the standard. But now, how? How does change really happen? Because this would all be incredibly depressing here if Paul doesn't give us some way to actually to, to show that Christians can change, because now he, he begins to get very practical. How does change happen? In verses 22, 23, and 24, he gives us the blueprint, and then he'll spend the entire rest of the letter actually giving case studies to illustrate it. So here's the blueprint, and then the case studies and the illustrations will follow in the, week, in the, in the weeks to follow. But, but this is the blueprint. We need, our job is to understand the blueprint, the model. Let me read it again. Verses 22, 23, and 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, just look, at the, look at these phrases very carefully. Just a little technical for just a minute. Right? You see that in what I read, there are three infinitive phrases, three verbs with a two in front of it, to this, to that, right? To put off yourself, what does Paul says? That we, need to, that we need to remember as it relates to the Gentile mindset, as it relates to our, to our former way of life. We need to, verse 22, put off your old self. And you need to remember to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And you need to remember to put on your new self. And he says that Christians, that, that's what they need to do. You need, you need to put off to be made new and to put on. Now, it would be a mistake if we think of that sort of as a chronological progression. Okay, first thing I do, I put off. And when I'm completely put off, all of those things that I need to stop doing, then I can move on to the other two because the three don't exist independently from one another. If you think of it like a, like a three-legged stool, right? What happens if you sit on a leg with only two stools and a three-legged stool? What happens? You fall over, right? You need all three for it, to, for it to work. All three have to be in place in order for it to work. It's the same way. All three of these things need to happen in order for change to occur properly in the life of a of a Christian. So let's consider this for a minute. First, let's, uh, let's consider two of them, the putting off and the putting on, because they're really two parts of the same, the same metaphor. And it's, it's, fairly, it's fairly simple, straightforward. If in your mind, immediately, when you think of this, okay, put off, put on. If what, if what comes to mind is someone taking off a jacket or a coat and putting on a new one, well, you got it. <laughs> That's it. It's not more complicated than that. That is the image that Paul wants to, to give us because even at the time, the metaphor of, an old, of taking off an old garment and putting on a new garment was, was a common one in the ancient world that sort of marked a change in status, a move from one way of life to something else, sort of a, 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 a ritual of initiation of sorts. And even in today's world, we retain some of this. Anyone, if you've either been you know, trained medically or you know someone who has or whatever, you know, in, in a lot of medical schools, whether it's for a doctor, sometimes for a physician's assistants or for nurses or therapists or whatever, they have what they call the white coat ceremony. And sometimes it happens at the, at the beginning of their training. Some schools do it in the middle, some at the end. But the symbol is always the same. Is okay, you've put on the white coat. You've become someone new now. Right? There's a visual kind of marker that this is now, you, are, you now have a different status. And that's, that's what Paul's doing here. That's, that's, now, the interesting thing about these verbs, though, put off and put on. The interesting thing is that they're both in a tense in the, in the, in the, Greek, in the Greek manuscript. They're both in a tense that has no real kind of direct parallel to, to English. It's a tense that implies something that has happened in the past 
but that has continuing implications. In other words, it's a past definitive event. It's over, it's done, and yet there are continuing implications in the present because of what's happened in the past. Now, often discussions of Greek tenses and sermons are really just simply a way for a pastor to demonstrate to you that he has read the commentaries. But in this case, it actually really is, it is kind of important because we can misunderstand it. If we view it, if we view this putting off and, and putting on as something that, that we need to just continually be doing here, that it isn't some definitive past act, then we can kind of look at it and say, like, I, I've got to, th- this is all on me. On the other hand, if it's something that's simply in the past, then, then it's not something that we, can, that we have to continue to work out, that we have to continue to consider the implications of. Because on the one hand, when it comes to a definitive past action that has been accomplished and and will not be repeated, anyone who has come to the point in their life where they have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior has put off the old self. It is off and has put on the new self. It is on. You are a new creature. You are a new creation. That's what Paul has spent the first three chapters of of, of the book of Ephesians doing, demonstrating that this is in, a, is in fact something that has happened definitively in the past. But on the other hand, on the other hand, while that is true, while that is the basis for our hope for change, real change occurs when we continue to consider the implications of that. And the need for change comes from the fact that we are not, at many points in our lives, actually thinking through the implications of what has happened. Which means that Paul wants us to take this historical truth of what has happened to us, and he wants us to apply it as a model for ongoing change, this concept of put off and put on. It's happened in a real, true, objective sense in the past, and when when we become Christians, when when we begin to follow Christ, and yet we can use this as a pattern for change in the the midst of the Christian life. And he continues to do that. Look just at verse, verse 25. You can see this, I'm, I'm not I'm trying not to steal from, from what's coming up next week, but, but you just have to see it as an example. Look at verse 25. He says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Okay, so Paul here is saying, all right, when I get to the example of, of lying and speaking truthfully, you see both things. You've got to do both things. You've got to put off falsehood, and you have to put on truth-telling. You can't do one without the other. You can't just put off lying. What is, what is a liar who has stopped lying but has not yet started to tell the truth. He's just a liar who's taking a breath. That's it. Still a liar. Right? you got to have both. They're connected. The put off and the put on. So, so Paul uses this as a pattern to, con- to continue to, to go forward. That's the pattern. That's how it works. And Paul doesn't pretend that this, as simple as it is to say something like that, he doesn't pretend that this is a simple kind of thing, that it's easy I mean, it's easy to understand, but it's not, it's not easy to do. It's a continual battle. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen the pictures of the, of the floating coffins? And by, by the, the coffins that actually come up out of the ground. A lot of the hurricanes kind of brought it to mind. But, but in areas of around, in the Louisiana Delta specifically, close to New Orleans, right, where the water table is really high, sometimes when you get real severe flooding, the coffins will actually rise up out of the ground. Now, Here's the thing about that. The bodies, they're dead. They're still dead. There's nothing, they're definitively, they're, they're dead. But what do you need to do to that coffin? You need to put more dirt on it. Push it back in the ground. And there's a sense in which that's, that's what Paul is trying to convey here. It is a continual battle. Our coffins, our, body, our old self is dead, but, but there's a sense in which at times when the floodwaters rise in our lives, those coffins will pop up. 
they'll pop up out of the ground. And Paul says that the work of putting off and putting on, the hard work of putting off the old self, putting on the new self, that's, that's like the shovel, picking up the shovel and pour it, you just got a time to bury it again. Because contact with that old self will cause infection, disease, bad things. It's got to go back in the ground. That's what he's saying here. Now, there's a lot more examples in, in the coming week, but that's the idea. When sin comes to your attention, you need to look for ways to put off that sin and put on the corresponding righteousness. Now, there is a potential danger here, because if this is where you stop, if you only look at two legs of the three-legged stool, what happens, did I say? You fall, right? And one of the ways in which you fall is that there is a tendency at times to just focus on these two legs and kind of think, I, I just have to worry about what it looks like on the outside. I just got, I got to put off bad stuff so that nobody sees me doing bad stuff. I got to put on good stuff so when everybody looks at me, they only see me doing good stuff. That's where you have this potential for, for legalism. Now, don't misunderstand here what legalism is. Right? Legalism is not obeying God's standards. It's not obeying the law. Obeying the law is not, is not legalism. Obeying the law is obedience. Obeying the law is worship. That is what is being called for us to do. Now, obeying the law because you think by obeying the law you somehow merit your favor with God, that could be legalism. And obeying the law in such a way to make yourself feel as if you're better than someone else, that can be legalism. Or adding all kinds of things on top of the requirements of God to make yourself seem even better than everyone else and then commending those extra requirements to other people and saying, you need to do this too if you're really going to be holy. That's legalism. But obeying the law is not legalism. But you can have the tendency, and maybe you've had experiences like this in churches like this or you've met Christians like this, where the focus is just on this put off, put on, and it just becomes a completely external thing. And that's the focus. And that's why you need this, that's why you need this third leg here. Right? Because, because you can't stop here. Verse 23, you have to remember, look at verse 23, you have to remember that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now what does that mean? Well, again, forgive the discussion of the tenses, but this actually is a present tense. This is something that, it, that's that happens right now in the life of the Christian. The renewal of the attitude of our minds. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process. And that process is the renewal of our motivation, the change of our, the change of our hearts. So, so, we, so we don't just put off and put on. We actually change so that we want to, and so that it's actually something that we want to do. It, it's, it's the development of a more refined sense of taste. Right, now, how does, how does that make it harder more, or, or, or deeper than, than you might first have thought? Right? How do, because, well, it makes it harder because you might, if you're just thinking of change, all right, you told me I need to stop doing this, I need to start doing this, start doing bad things, start doing good things. Now you, change, now you tell me I actually have to want to? That it's not just what I do, but why I do it that matters as well? Yeah, that's what he's saying. That, that, that makes it deeper. It makes it significantly harder. On the other hand, it also gives us far more reason to hope than we might if we were just focused on the stuff that we had to do. Because what this means is that God actually wants to change our hearts from the inside out, to give us new motivations, new affections that will actually desire the things that he desires, that we want to obey. Now, how does this happen? How, do we, how are we made new in the attitudes of our, of our minds? It happens when we take the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ is what Christians call the gospel. When we take that truth and we push it down deep into our hearts, we push it into our minds so that those truths over time begin to change us. 
John Calvin, again, he put it like this. He's commenting on this, this particular verse, and this is what he says. Christian doctrine, he says, that's the teaching, of, the teaching of the gospel, is grasped not only by the intellect and the memory, as truth is grasped in other fields of study. Rather, he says, doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of the entire soul, finds a dwelling place and a shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. Now, listen to that again. Doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of our entire soul and, get this, finds a dwelling place and a shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. So that's what you need to do right there. There it is. Right? We need to build a house for the gospel in our heart, a place for it to dwell, where it can, it, it can sit, where those truths can put down roots, right? where, they, where, they can go, where they can go deep. And, th- and this is what it looks like. This is just an example of what it looks like. Think of a text just like what we were talking about. Just think of this text right here. Just think of this concept that Paul's going to continue to elaborate on, this idea of, of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Think about it. And it seems overwhelming when you first think about it. This is why you've got to push it deep. Because you first look at it and you say, wow, that's overwhelming. I've got to put all this stuff off. I've got to put all this, all this other stuff on. And so you, but, you, but you keep thinking about it. You, you let it sit there. And then you begin to think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is man commanding me to put off the corruption. Put off the corruption and put on the righteousness. But in order, for, in order to make that possible, what did he do for me? He did the opposite. And you think about how on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had all the righteousness and all the holiness that any human being could ever possess, Jesus Christ on the cross put off the righteousness that by every right was his, and put on the consequences of corruption that by every right are ours. And you consider, he did that for me. He put on the corruption so that I didn't have to bear it. He put off the righteousness, his righteousness, so that I could have it. He put on my off and he put off what I get to put on. That's the only thing, what he did for me, that's the only thing that will prevent me from living the kind of life that Paul describes in verses 17, 18, and 19. A life of futility, a life of destruction, a life of separation from God. Now let that truth dwell in your heart. Consider that. Let it roll around on your tongue, if you will. Taste it. Get what it feels like. Let it take up residence build a house, and watch what happens. And I don't mean to make it sound as if that's, that's easy, because it's not. It's simple. It sounds simple, but it's not, it's not easy. It means what you need to do is you need to take every opportunity that you have to put yourself in the presence of that gospel. Right? It's why we say you should be reading your Bible every day. Right? You, need to be, you need to be praying every day back to God the promises that he's making to you and asking him to push deep into your heart the truths of what he has done for you. Right? We tell you, you should be here in corporate worship on Sundays. Why? So that you can gather with other people and rehearse back to God in a corporate setting the promises that he has given to us. And by that, by the action of doing that continually over and over again, praising God back for the things that he has done for you, it goes deeper. It's why we tell you that you should be in small groups of people gathering together on a regular basis so that you're able to speak these truths into one another's lives. 
Right? We don't tell you these things. We don't encourage you to do these things because we want to keep track of you. Right? Because it's like, well, better keep them busy. <laughs> better keep them busy. Who knows what they might do? No. We tell you these things because this is how it happens. This is how a house is built in your heart so that the gospel can take up residence and so that you can begin to change. Now, it is possible that you ask the question after this, can I really do this? I mean, you might be convinced of the need. You might see the standard to which you should change. And you might even see Paul's pattern for how that happens and still be in a place of despair. Can I actually do it? I mean, is it really possible? I mean, there's some that argue from an academic kind of point of view, a biological or, or a sociologist or whatever, who would kind of say, no, we're just a construct. All our decisions are just simply a construct of our DNA and our social environment, and there's no such thing as really possible as change. We're all determined. All right, but most of us, I think, if we go back to what we, st go back to what I asked you to think about at the beginning, most of our objections to whether change is really possible doesn't come from that point of view. It comes from the fact that when we consider those areas of our lives that we'd like to be different, we've most likely tried to change them before, and we failed. And we try, and we fail, and we try, and we fail. And you get yourself caught in a place of despair. And you begin to think that maybe this can't happen. And it doesn't take you very long to realize that change is, if it's completely dependent upon your own willpower, Right? There will be some areas that might come relatively easily. Sure, they can they, they change. Look, that was easy. But there are other areas of your life where change, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen easily. It's a fight every single day. And we can't know. It's a struggle at this point sometimes to sort of challenge God. What are you doing? Why are you allowing me to continue with, to struggle with something that you, that, that you don't want me to do? Why? And it's a struggle, and we don't always know why. And yet, we can be absolutely certain that God intends for us to change, and we can trust based on his character that he allows us to struggle with that perhaps, and only perhaps because there's something that we need to learn about him and about us that we might not learn any other way. So in the midst of our fight, he is there. In the midst of our struggle, we are not alone. Diane Langberg, we've quoted her before, she's a clinical psychologist, a PhD psychologist who works in the Philadelphia area. Our own Barbara Schaefer is a colleague of hers. And, and Diane has written extensively. She's traveled the world extensively ministering to people whose lives have been broken by horrific events, by, by instances of trauma. And, and, and in some cases, there's things, there's situations that if I were to even describe them, you say, wow, where, where is there any hope of change at all in something like that? Maybe you've experienced that personally yourself. Maybe you look around the world and you say, I, I see situations like that. How, how can someone maintain, have any kind of hope in situations like that? Cases of horrific abuse, cases where on the basis, well, because that's happened, people make horrific choices as a result of it. But Diane maintains that there is hope. It, it, one of her books where she writes about trauma, she introduces in an introduction, because she says, well, what's the basis that I have to write any of this that I'm about to write? And this is what she says. She says, I have the basis of hope because I've met the Redeemer. I've met him. He's a man of sorrows. He's, a, he's acquainted with grief. He was left alone. He was regarded with contempt. He was scarred for all eternity. His suffering has left tracks across his face. His hands and feet carry marks of the violence that was done to him. He was afflicted, struck, crushed, stripped, and oppressed. He put on what you put off. And he puts off what you get to put on. She knows the Redeemer. 
But even more than that, she says, I don't just know the Redeemer. I haven't just met this Redeemer. I've seen his work. I've watched him comfort and bind up and set free and rebuild and repair. I've seen him tenderly choose the rejected, strengthen the weak, carry the broken, and destroy those who war against the soul. We have a God who is about change. Have you met the Redeemer? Not only is he the model for change, not only is he the growth chart by which our change is is measured, his death and resurrection has once and for all changed the course of human history. And as a result, he is the one, the only one, that makes change possible. Change is needed, and change is possible. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you don't just leave us. Leave us in our misery. Leave us with a sense that we should be different and then give us no way to get there. God, thank you that you have definitively made a different way for us. Through your past action on the cross, this historical reality, we are able to look back and say, at that moment, all of human history has changed. Lord, let us, let us live out the implications of that in our daily lives. Let us no longer live like those who are outside of the requirements and the promises of God. Let us seek to live in conformity with the standards that you put in front of us. And let us come to you asking that you would change our hearts, that you would give us new motivations, new desires, that we would want what you would want so that we might do what you want us to do. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.